This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends, and welcome again to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and of the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. This is episode 192, entitled, The Christological Impact of Psalm 8 in Hebrews chapter 2. Yes, we'll be looking at the 8th Psalm and the way that it functions within the argument in the 2nd chapter of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 draws upon Psalm 8 for a variety of literary purposes. Now, Psalm 8 was a very popular citation from the Old Testament scriptures, especially because it spoke about God placing all things under the feet of mankind, under the feet of humanity. Now, biblical Unitarians traditionally have made little use of Psalm 8 in their teachings and explanations of their Christology, despite the fact that New Testament writers, and even Jesus himself, according to the Gospels, cited Psalm 8 not infrequently. This calls for us to come to a better understanding of Psalm 8, and since we're doing a series on the book of Hebrews, we can look here at how the author of Hebrews uses Psalm 8 in reference to Jesus. What does the use of Psalm 8 within the narrative of the book of Hebrews tell us about the author's Christology? What can we learn about God and his relationship with Jesus in light of Psalm 8? And what does it mean that God made Jesus lower than the angels? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is initial impressions of Hebrews chapter 2. I thought we would start off by reading the passage and offering our initial reflections and impressions. So we will start in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but... One has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, He left nothing that is not subject to him. But now, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
That's Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. And wow, there is just a lot within those verses, especially with the quotation of Psalm 8 and the way that the author unpacks the implications of that particular psalm. So my initial reflections would include the fact that Psalm 8 seems to continue this ongoing contrast between Jesus and the heavenly angels. The author is able to do that. The author is able to cite Psalm 8 to the point where Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, thus further contrasting them. But also we could see that if Jesus is highly exalted and God puts all things in subjection under the feet of Jesus, that phrase, all things, would include the angels. It's also important to note that Psalm 8 is quoted from the Greek version of the Old Testament, what we call the Septuagint. It is not quoted from the Hebrew. And if you were to hold your mark in Hebrews chapter 2 and flip over to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms and read Psalm 8, you will notice that some of the wording is a little bit different. And the reason for that is that the original 8th Psalm was written in Hebrew. Eventually it was translated into Greek. And it was the Greek version that was quoted by the author of the book of Hebrews. And that translation from the original Hebrew Psalm 8 to the Greek version had a number of interesting changes. In particular, there is an ambiguous phrase in Psalm 8 where it says that humanity was made a little lower than, and then we have the Hebrew noun Elohim. The Hebrew noun Elohim could refer to God, or it could refer to the plural gods, lowercase g gods. And of course, those lowercase g gods need to be defined, and so it's possible that those refer to heavenly beings. We'll come back to this point a little bit later, because the translator of the Hebrew into the Greek version of the Old Testament had to make a choice as to what that Hebrew noun Elohim meant, and that translator translated it as angels. Now there is some tension between the subjection of all things to Jesus that has taken place and what can actually be observed by human senses and experiences. And so the author is saying that all things have been subjected under the feet of Jesus, but we don't yet see all these things taking place. And the author is well aware that that tension exists. Another thing that stands out to me, which seems to be pretty obvious to many readers of the Bible, is that Jesus is frequently distinguished from God. Jesus and God are not confused. Jesus and God are not collapsed into a single being. God does things to Jesus. And the fact that Jesus has been the beneficiary of God's own attributes, namely being crowned with God's glory and being crowned with God's honor, this seems to be due to the fact that Jesus suffered and died. There seems to be a connection to the fact that Jesus died and the subsequent act 
of God crowning Jesus with God's own attributes. And it's no small thing for a human being to be the beneficiary of God's attributes. That's God sharing his own self and his own powers and his own privileges with his creation, with creatures, with mortals. So those are some initial implications and considerations from just looking at the text. Let's look a little bit closer. Point number two is looking at the Hebrew text of Psalm 8. So I have to be very, very careful to not confuse the fact that Psalm 8 was originally written in Hebrew, and our study today is looking at the book of Hebrews. So I'm trying to be very, very careful in distinguishing those so that our listeners will not be confused. So we talked about how Psalm 8 was originally written in Hebrew. It was translated into Greek, and it's that Greek version that was cited in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. But let's look at the original reference in Psalm 8 and draw some conclusions from that. So I'm going to read the passage that was cited and a little bit of the context therein. Psalm 8 is not very long. It's less than 12 verses. So I'm going to start in verse 3 of Psalm 8. So we're looking at the version of Psalm 8 that was written in Hebrew. Starting in verse 3, it says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6. Now, there's a couple points that I think we need to clear the air on and make sure that we're absolutely clear in regard to. And that is the fact that there are these parallel lines which say, what is man that you take thought of him? And the line under that, which says, and the son of man that you care for him. So we have this parallel between man and the son of man, or just humanity and the son of humanity. This is not in reference to man as in a male that is distinguished from female. It is a reference to man, meaning humanity, meaning mankind. And so these seem to be just generic references to humanity. There are references to human beings. And you can hear the echoes here of Genesis chapter 1, where Adam, whose very name means humanity, is created and made to rule over the works of God's hands. We'll come back and talk a little bit about Genesis chapter 1 here in a moment. So, since man and son of man are just parallel references to humanity, to human beings, it's unlikely that son of man here is functioning as a title. I know that Jesus within the Gospels describes himself with the title son of man, and that is true, but that's not the way that son of man is used in this particular psalm. That's not the way that it was understood by the Greek translator of Psalm 8, and it's certainly not the way that the author of Hebrews 
understands the phrase son of man. So I know it's very easy to read the phrase son of man and to make a very quick connection with son of man as a title for Jesus as the authorized human being in the Gospels and to make those connections between these passages. But it seems that the phrase son of man in Psalm 8 is just a synonym for humanity. It's just a generic reference for mankind. Now Psalm 8 goes on to speak about the ideal purposes of humanity by drawing specifically from Genesis chapter 1 verses 27 through 28. Specifically where Adam, namely humanity, was to be in charge over the birds of the air, the animals, the creeping things, and the fish of the sea. The things that are in heaven, the things that are on earth, and the things that are under the earth. So Adam, the prototypical human being, was to have all of these things in subjection under his feet. Now in Psalm 8, we can see this phrase, you have made him a little lower. You have made him a little lower. Namely, God has made humanity a little bit lower. Now, there is some confusion with what this actually means because there's unavoidable ambiguity in the English language. And so I want to diffuse that ambiguity because the Greek text is actually pretty clear on this matter. So there are a couple of options as to how someone who is hearing this read out in English might understand it. So the question is, did God make humanity, as in create humanity, in a status that is lower than God? So again, the passage says that you have made him a little lower than God. So is this verb made him, is that a reference to making as in creating? Did God create humanity lower than God? Or did God make humanity lower as in God reduced humanity's status? God decreased humanity. So is it making humanity in the sense of creating humanity? That's option one. Or is it making humanity lower in the sense of reducing or decreasing status. Now the Hebrew verb chasar in the PL, which is used here in Psalm 8, actually means to decrease someone, to reduce someone in comparison to another. So it seems that Psalm 8 is describing God making humanity lower in the sense of reducing humanity's status. It's not using the word make in the sense of create. So that's important for us to avoid that ambiguity. And of course, it has this phrase in the Hebrew of making humanity a little lower than God. Now, this word for God in Hebrew is Elohim, and Elohim could refer to God, the one God, the true God. It could also refer to plural gods, lowercase g gods. And it's possible these lowercase g gods could refer to heavenly beings, namely the angels. When we look at the lexicons, 
they point out to us that the Hebrew noun Elohim could, on rare occasion, refer to angelic heavenly beings. So there's some ambiguity as to whether human beings were made lower than God or human beings made lower than gods, namely divine heavenly beings. Now, the Greek translator of the Septuagint that was dealing with Psalm 8 looked at this noun Elohim and had to make a decision on it. And this translator understood it to refer to heavenly angels. And so that's why when you see it quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that you have made him a little lower than the angels. But in Psalm 8, it says you've made him a little lower than God. That's why that difference is there. Because the Greek translator understood Elohim as referring to plural, divine, heavenly beings, namely angels. And so that translator thought that God made humanity lower than the angels. Now, this doesn't prove that that's the way that Psalm 8 was originally intended to be understood, but that's the way that the Greek translator understood it, and that's the way that the author of Hebrews approved of by citing the passage in reference to Jesus. So those are some interesting points in looking at Psalm 8 and its importance. Now, we can ask what Psalm 8 means in regard to Jesus based on what we see in Hebrews chapter 2. That'll move us to our third point. Point number three is what Psalm 8 says about Jesus according to the author of Hebrews. So what can we learn about Jesus and the way that the author of Hebrews develops his Christology for his readers, for his intended audience? Well, it's pretty clear that Jesus is contrasted from God and Jesus is contrasted from the heavenly angels. That's very important, very interesting. So the Jesus that's being portrayed here is not in the same category as God, and he's not in the same category as the angels. In fact, Jesus is described in purely human terms. He is described as man. He is described as son of man. Jesus is squarely a member of the human race. Now, as a side note, this demonstrates that this phrase, angels, that the author Hebrews has been describing in chapter 1 and here specifically in chapter 2. With the quotation of Psalm 8, this phrase, angels, which technically in the Greek is ambiguous. It could refer to heavenly angels or it could refer to generic messengers, namely human messengers. But since Jesus, in fulfillment of the human subject, the man son of man in Psalm 8, is made lower than these angels. This demonstrates that these angels cannot be human. It would be nonsensical for the author of Hebrews to cite Psalm 8 to suggest that the human Jesus was made lower than other generic human messengers. So the phrase angels must mean heavenly angels. And the citation of Psalm 8 further makes the argument that was ongoing in chapter 1, verses 5 through 13, that the crucified and risen 
Jesus is greater than angels, namely angelic heavenly beings. That's what angels means in Hebrews. We can also see, based on Hebrews chapter 2, that God made Jesus lower than the angels for a little while. Okay? And the question of when this actually took place really should not be something that is open for debate because the author of Hebrews explicitly tells us what he means with this particular phrase. Hebrews actually unpacks this for us and tells us that the time when God made Jesus lower, and of course that means that God reduced Jesus' status, the time when God made Jesus lower than the angels for a little while was at the moment of Jesus' death. Let me read again verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, which says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death. So there it is. For a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels because of the suffering of death. So Jesus was dead for a little while, and at that point, certainly he's lower than the angels because he's dead, he's deceased, and the angels presumably are alive and functioning. Now, after Jesus' death, namely when he was raised and exalted to heaven, at this point, God crowned Jesus with glory and honor. And this is such a very important part of New Testament Christology, and more biblical Unitarians should pay attention to these words. Because God's glory and God's honor, and back in the Hebrew Psalmate, this honor was God's majesty. These are actually attributes of God. God's glory, God's honor, God's majesty. These are God's attributes. And God has shared his own attributes with Jesus. And not just with any Jesus. God has shared these attributes with a human being. And this is not necessarily a New Testament innovation. This is something that was already there in Psalm 8, hundreds of years before the New Testament was even written. God has and is able to share his own attributes and his prerogatives with created creatures, specifically with human beings. That's what Psalm 8 says. And it's that understanding that was already there in the Hebrew Bible that was drawn upon to help us understand the manner in which Jesus was exalted in his high and lofty position after his resurrection to the right hand of God. Some people wonder, why is it that all of the high and exalted things that are said about Jesus in the New Testament are after his resurrection? And I think that's the answer, is that Jesus was exalted as he was raised from the dead to God's right hand, and God has shared his attributes and his prerogatives with him. Specifically here, God crowned Jesus with God's own glory and God's own honor. 
this portrays Jesus within the book of Hebrews as not simply a human being, but a highly empowered human being, a highly authorized human being. Now, part of the fact that God crowned Jesus with glory and honor involves God putting all things under Jesus' feet. And the term that's used there is that God has subjected all things under the feet of Jesus. Now, it's important to realize that Jesus didn't do this. God did it to Jesus. God made this happen to Jesus. Jesus and God are distinct in this relationship. God has allowed this to happen to Jesus. God has exalted Jesus, and God has put these things under Jesus' feet. And it also goes without saying that all things that are put under the feet of Jesus would include all created things, namely the heavenly angels, further demonstrating that Jesus is greater than the angels, because all things, including angels, are under Jesus' feet. So this is actually really important in understanding the implications of New Testament Christology. I want you to think about this for a second. If God has exalted Jesus to God's right hand, which is a subordinate position, but it's a high position, and if God has put all things under the feet of Jesus, then this human Jesus is effectively the number two person in the entire universe as far as rank and status go. And the author of Hebrews portrays Jesus in this way in fulfillment of a psalm that, remember, talks about humanity. It doesn't talk about someone who is divine, someone who is God. It talks about humanity who is exalted and that God puts all things in subjection under humanity's feet. Now let's talk about this phrase at the end of our initial passage, which says, By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus might taste death for everyone. And I want to talk about this phrase, taste death for everyone. Because some people have looked at this, and they've argued that, well, Jesus only tasted death. And if he just tasted death, he didn't have all of death. So, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus didn't really die. He only tasted death. And this will give these interpreters an argument to say that Jesus is actually an immortal divine being, perhaps Yahweh himself, perhaps God the Son, and he only tasted death because God can't really die, and that's the language that's used. And so some people read this part in chapter 2, verse 9, which says that Jesus tasted death, and they use it to argue that Jesus didn't really die. He didn't completely die. He only tasted death, like I had a taste of the apple pie. I didn't eat all of it. I just had just a little taste, just a, just a smidge of it. Unfortunately, that's not how the language functions. That's not what the word means, and that's not how the New Testament uses that particular phrase. The verb taste within Greek regularly means to experience something, to come to know something cognitively and physically. 
Look at how Jesus even used this particular language. In Mark chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus said, Some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And Jesus is saying, Some of you standing here aren't going to die until you see the kingdom of God come in power. He's not saying, well, you're just going to taste death, as in, it's only a little bit, you're not really going to die, you're only going to partially die, or no, no, no. To taste death means you're going to die. And even in John 8, 52, it is quote of Jesus that Jesus said that if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. The implication there is that he will never die. Not that he will never only have a smidge and a taste and a little bit of appetizer of death. No, come on. Let's be real. To taste death means to die. That's what the word means in the lexicons. That's how Jesus used it within the Gospels. It's very clear. To taste death means that Jesus died. And the author of Hebrews has already said that Jesus has died. That Jesus had his suffering unto death. So I know some people might make that argument, but it doesn't stand up to scrutiny, to the way that the lexicons understand the verb, and the way that Jesus himself uses the phrase within the Gospels. Let's now move to our fourth and final point, which is the function of Psalm 8 in the overarching argument. Now, the quotation of Psalm 8 does quite a lot to further the argument and the narrative agenda belonging to the writer of the book of Hebrews. So I don't want to just sit here and talk about the Christological implications. I want to say that this actually does function in a way to further the argumentation that the book of Hebrews is trying to implement for its readers. Now, by emphatically stating that God has placed all things in subjection to the risen Jesus' feet, we can see that Jesus is further distinguished from the angels as a human being. By Jesus being a man, a member of the human race, he is distinguished from the angels because God has placed all things under the feet of this human being. We can also see that the subjection of all things under the feet of Jesus argues for the present rulership and dominion of Jesus. All things are under his feet, meaning Jesus is in charge. Despite the fact that the readers of the book of Hebrews are experiencing persecution, suffering, and many negative experiences. And so the author is aware of this particular tension between experience and theological truth. Now the psalm, by portraying Jesus as dying and then being raised to glory and honor, indicates to the readers that glory and honor come after a time of suffering, not in place of it. So they are suffering, they are being persecuted, but the glory and honor comes after that because that's what's happened to Jesus. And Jesus is the representative of humanity based on Psalm 8. Psalm 8 also depicts the destiny of humanity, of human beings. What I mean by this is that the author of Hebrews depicts Jesus as fulfilling the role of all humanity. And by fulfilling the role of humanity, this makes Jesus the model human being. And of course, 
if Jesus is the model human being that fulfills a passage that talks about man and the Son of Man, this would be completely nonsensical. If Jesus was 100% God who took upon himself impersonal human nature at the Incarnation, impersonal human nature is not a model for humanity. The author of Hebrews emphatically states that Jesus is a human being and even demonstrates this with a citation from the Old Testament. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 8, and this psalm has many implications for the Christology in the book of Hebrews. I broke these down into six little bullet points, six easy things that you can clearly draw from the use of psalmate in Hebrews chapter 2. First, it distinguishes God and Jesus. God and Jesus are separate. They're not confused. They're not collapsed. They aren't together as synonyms. Second, it squarely places Jesus on the side of humanity. Jesus is the man, the mortal, the human being, the son of man. Third, it distinguishes Jesus even from the heavenly angels. Jesus is made lower than the angels. And this word for angels in this passage refers to heavenly messengers, angelic beings. Fourth, it portrays Jesus as a mortal, someone who suffers and dies. And that is something that human beings do. But God can't die. God's not mortal. Fifth, it describes the exaltation of Jesus after his death in terms of God sharing his attributes with the human Jesus. God's own glory and God's honor are crowned upon this member of the human race, upon Jesus. God shares his attributes with this human creature. Six, God places all things in subjection to this crucified and risen human being. And so Jesus is given, by God, authority over all things. And included in that phrase for all things is the angels. So the most appropriate Christology that takes seriously the fact that Jesus is a human being who died and was exalted by God to share in God's attributes and authority over all things, is a high human Christology, not a Trinitarian or Arian Christology. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Please join us next week as we look at the implications in the ambiguous reference to the cardinal number one in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. Now, if you aren't aware of the grammatical ambiguity in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11, then you won't want to miss this episode because there are untapped arguments in favor of biblical Unitarian Christology in light of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11. So please look forward to this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote the truths of the one true God, his oneness, his unity, and of course the truths of the humanity of Jesus. You may check out the episode's description for a link to donate.
The Biblical Unitarian Podcast is produced and edited by Dustin Williams. I'm Dustin Smith, your host. Until next time, you folks, please take care.